Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Undone Podcast. This episode began recording on March 28, 2020 at 9-11 p.m. So for the last few months, COVID-19 has really taken the spotlight in the media. And let's be honest, that's the right thing to do. But how we talked about in the last episode on the Four Horsemen, that's what that does is that creates a blind spot. And in this blind spot, if we're being real, this allows bad actors to do so as they please without any scrutiny. As the great president Abraham Lincoln once said, and I hope you remember this from school, a house divided cannot stand. And if we look at the United States in the last decade, this house's foundation has become even more shaky. On one side of the spectrum, they're worried about stigmatizing ethnicities and identities and the rhetoric from Donald Trump. On the other side of that spectrum, on the right, there's been a fairly more caustic reaction whether that's from the erosion of public trust or their combativeness on semantics, both of these sides are technically right on their merits. However, and that's key, however, they're being both misled. They're playing into this, this game. Let's call it a secret war. This secret war is between ideas. The idea that the individual is greater than the community. It's between Western democracy and Eastern autocracies. It's between individualism and collectivism. And if we point the finger at who it is exactly between, it's between the United States of America and the People's Republic of China. For this series, I'm going to break it into two parts. In this part, we're going to talk about the history of China and how false assumptions on the direction that we thought it was going to go and how corporatism has plagued the United States in the last 30 years and voting against our own interests, how that those three things together have been a three-pronged attack on the unbecoming of the United States, leading to its hegemonic decline. How does this decline coincide with COVID-19? What the world's gonna look like with the United States leaving a global power vacuum? In the second part though, next week, we're going to look at the history of China and the United States again, but how that really has influenced current events, including the battle for democracy in Hong Kong or the one child policy or the one China policy and how the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, has played Americans into fighting amongst ourselves, especially during this coronavirus pandemic. It's important to note about this episode that it is a historical review of international relations and current events. My critiques are not against the citizens of China or Asian Americans, but they are critiques of the Chinese Communist Party and their propaganda morning, through the last hundred years. Good morning, brother John. Do, do, do.
So for starters, China has this rich, long history. This history goes back 4,000 years. It's one of the oldest civilizations that was at the center of all commerce at one point and ruled under what emperors called the Mandate of Heaven. If we look at modern China, modern China borrows many of its geopolitical strategies and policies from during the Warren States period from 475 BCE to 221 BCE. And mainstream critics really argue that they only use axioms from its past metaphorically. But if we're being honest and critical, current events prove otherwise. A common misconception about China is that China wants to be just like us here in the United States. This isn't true in the slightest, and don't let that fool you. Where us Americans prefer directness and being blunt and straightforward, the Chinese favor indirectness and ambiguity to create deception, to create a fog, so to say. They would paint themselves in the 19th century and 20th century as backward and in need of assistance for its rise to power. This deception is married to the concept of Xi. And if I can break down Xi in the easiest way, Xi, one, it can't be directly translated into the English language, uh, but it's really described as the universal alignment of forces. Uh, think of it as the propensity for things to happen. This is used in warfare to gain an advantage over one's opponent. If you've heard of any Eastern philosophers, you've definitely heard of Sun Tzu. And in Sun Tzu's theory of warfare, he places an emphasis on utilizing Xi to use minimal force that results in the massive and maximum destruction of the opponent. Modern Chinese strategists have gone further to adopt the 36 stratagems from their ancient past to return the mandate of heaven back to China. So we have to really build the framework for how China became what it was. And like we just talked about, about these strategies, uh, these strategies are predicated on Western ideology painting China as this sick man of Asia and depicting its failures of hard governance after humiliating defeats both to the British Empire during the Opium Wars of 1838 to 1860 and in the first Sino-Japanese War in 1895. And due to these humiliations, their country, their citizens, would suffer mass starvation, uh, extreme poverty, widespread grief, and these chaotic times would breed resentment and the, this resentment was, you know, looked at uh, to, to foreigners who had been colonizing their country. And from here, this resentment would really broil in poor young farmers. And these poor young farmers adopted, you know, physical skill and were heavily influenced in what it is to be Chinese and Chinese nationalism. And this group is now known as the Boxers. Uh, and the Qing Dynasty, the ruling dynasty, would directly sponsor them 
and turned them into a state-sponsored militia. In the year 1900, the Boxer Rebellion would begin and spread where the Qing Dynasty would encourage the Boxers to go, and they would encourage them to kill Christians and foreigners and, and anyone who the Boxers felt that really sold out their country. However, though, this rebellion was immediately squashed by a international force of uh, just to list a few countries, uh, Austria, Hungary, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, Russia, and the United States and the United Kingdom. They would force the Chinese to pay reparations from the lives lost to this rebellion, and this would only further reinforce the negative European perceptions about China and its people. It creates this plight of xenophobia on both sides. The Boxer Rebellion would only accelerate the fall of the Qing Dynasty and would set the backdrop for the rise of communism in China in 1911. And communist China would not forget what they call the century of humiliation to the hands of Western powers. This would become a monster of our own making. I wish that Franklin D. Roosevelt had lived to see this day. General Eisenhower informs me that the forces of Germany have surrendered to the United Nations. Much remains to be done. The victory won in the West must now be won in the East. Since May 7th, 1945, the United States has enjoyed political, economic, and technological dominance over the globe. It's really, we, we've really been able to shape ourselves into the world's hegemonic power. This, this power, it, this power comes from us defeating the Axis powers of World War II. And essentially, when we talk about eras, you've probably heard of, you know, the age of dinosaurs or the age of man. This era ushered in what we call Pax Americana, and this has been coupled with the U.S.'s ability to project its hard power on a global scale, and defeating Hitler and the Axis powers would create this struggle between the Soviet Union and the United States over for unipolar dominance and how their different ideologies would shape the world. And in 1949, the leader of the communists, Mao Zedong, would declare victory over the ruling Nationalist Party at the time of uh, Chiang Kai-shek, which, after their defeat, they fled to Taiwan. Uh, One China becoming two, and if we can pinpoint where the secret war starts, it is at this moment. Under Mao's reign, the Chinese would adopt this new nationalist identity, but they would feign weakness to the Soviet Union as the leader of the communist world. Uh, Mao Zedong would adopt Western ideas of social Darwinism, but would adopt the Soviet model for industrialization. So you have you know, the strongest will survive politically, but economically you, you have a command economy. And unlike the Soviet Union, communist China 
had a very dense population and not a surplus of usable land. If you look at the history books, this period is probably characterized by the ill-fated attempts to hyper-industrialize and mobilize China's economy in an attempt to modernize and improve the life of the Chinese, there would be setbacks. There would be the eradication of all sparrows who Mao thought were eating too much of the grain from crops. But unbeknownst to him, sparrows were really staving off another pest. They were staving off locusts. And losing their major predator, locust populations would boom and they would devour everything in their path. This would probably have been the near unbecoming of communist China. And this resulted in one of the worst famines. This resulted in tens of millions dead where there was widespread hunger and famine. And people would be forced to result to unthinkable acts like cannibalism to survive. Tensions between the Chinese Communist Party and Soviet Union would actually begin to deteriorate farther by the end of Mao's Great Leap Forward. And the Chinese Communist Party elites would start this internal battle uh, with their founding father, Mao. Mao had developed this cult of personality throughout the country. He was the face of the Communist Party. Wherever you go, you would see his portrait on factories, in homes, in places of worship, and citizens would actually begin to study the thoughts of their great leader. They would pore over his official textbooks, and in a sense, this became their religion. This became their orthodoxy. The Communist Party would try to blame Mao and depose him, but Mao would instruct the his flock to uh, to continue the cause under his cultural revolutions. And this would be a turning point. This would be a turning point for young communists. They're, they're destroying what Mao called the four olds, which were old ideas, old customs, old culture, and old habits. These young would be self-described as uh, what, what we call the red guards and would grow more radicalized and they would destroy and even kill anyone who they deemed was part of the elite, part of the bourgeois class. And with little oversight, these Red Guards and Mao would clash with their own party, the CCP. The CCP elites would want to take the party in one direction and Mao and the Red Guard in the other. And, and, And thankfully... At the time, the, the Communist Party was able to quell the Red Guards. They would force them to retire to the countryside. And among those in the Red Guard, there was a young man named Xi Jinping. And remember that name because we'll get back to that. On March 2nd, 1969, so the Soviet Union soldiers and the Chinese Communists would actually clash at their common border. And this was unheard of at the time, the the two communist countries fighting each other, right? The Americans would use this schism for our advantage, and especially for our advantage during uh, what we call Cold War diplomacy. However, unknown to us at the time, the Chinese planned to use us, the Americans, as 
they had used the Soviet Union as tools for their own advancement. The Chinese feared invasion from their northern neighbors and saw the Soviets under the Brezhnev Doctrine uh, as a bully and as, as, you know, ironically a tyrant and would not allow any other communist country to question the Soviet Union's authority. This would turn from implicit threats to explicit violence when the Soviets would invade Czechoslovakia. The Chinese really feared imminent invasion and became even more paranoid. So they developed this strategy, and this, this strategy would play us Americans and utilize the rivalry between the Soviet Union in the United States and really pit us against each other even more. The Chinese would be borrowing from one of the stratagems of uh, kill with a borrowed sword, it, or it can be better described as attacking using the strength of another. The Soviet Union would warn us, they would actually come to us and warn us of what China's true intentions were, but we didn't listen. Chairman Mao Zedong would summon four Chinese war hawks in May of 1969, and they recommended Mao sign a non-aggression pact with the United States that the likes of which Adolf Hitler signed with Stalin in 1939. Mao saw that the universe, or if you remember, the or she was pushing China out of Soviet, the Soviet Union's orbit and into the orbit of the United States. China would already be describing, though, that the United States as an enemy and even likened us to Nazi Germany. Good evening. I have requested this television time tonight to announce a major development in our efforts to build a lasting peace in the world. As I have pointed out on a number of occasions over the past three years, there can be no stable and enduring peace without the participation of the People's Republic of China and its 750 million people. That is why I have undertaken initiatives in several areas to open the door for more normal relations between our two countries. In pursuance of that goal, I sent Dr. Kissinger my assistant for national security affairs to Peking during his recent world tour for the purpose of having talks with Premier Zhou Enlai. So in 1972, President Richard Nixon moved to normalize relations between the PRC and the United States. And he did this by traveling to Beijing. This was groundbreaking for the time. This was the first time a U.S. president had actually visited the PRC since its founding. And it's important to note, though, that the Nixon administration was dealing with two things back at home. One, Watergate had just started. And two, domestically, the Vietnam War was extremely unpopular. So his advisor, Henry Kissinger, thought that they could use this to gain some political points. They would, one, utilize this visit to China to drive a wedge between the Soviet Union and the People's Republic. And two, on the home front, they can say, hey, look, look at what we're doing. 
we're moving to normalize this relationship between a communist country and a capitalist country, right? So during the, the talks with Mao and his foreign minister, Zhao Enlai, they discussed what they called their northern neighbor, and they came to two agreements. One, they agreed to withdraw troops from northern Vietnam, and two, they moved to a mutual cooperation to defeat the Soviets. And it's important to note there's something that the U.S. team missed during these conversations. The Chinese would consistently refer to the U.S. as the BA. That's spelled B-A. And Henry Kissinger and his team really didn't understand this term. This term, BA, has extreme cultural and historical significance. Uh, the BA goes back to the Warring States period. And during this time, the BA provided military order throughout the world. And it used its military might to wipe out nations with force. So in Chinese culture, the BA is heavily regarded as a tyrant. And perhaps if Nixon and his advisors really would have understood this translation, perhaps we could have walked a different path than the one that we're on today. So at the end of this summit, one Zhao Enlai would continue to be this influential voice to Mao and would push the one China policy throughout throughout the coming summits. But they would, at the end of this one, they would sign what we call the Shanghai Communique. And the Shanghai Communique states, neither the United States nor China should seek hegemony in the Asia-Pacific region. And each is opposed to efforts by any other country or group of countries to establish such hegemony. And neither is prepared to negotiate on behalf of any third party or to enter into agreements or understandings with the other directed at other states. So the relationship between America and the People's Republic would continue to flourish well into the 1970s, especially under the Nixon administration and the Ford administration. The United States would go on to provide secret intelligence of the Soviet Union to the People's Republic. But during this time, though, back in China, Mao Zedong would be fighting this internal struggle, this internal conflict. And... Essentially, he was refereeing on one side those that benefited from the Cultural Revolution and on the other, those who believed that the People's Republic was all the worse for the atrocities that they had committed. Now, in 1976, Mao Zedong would pass and would hand that torch onto uh, the leader, Deng Xiaoping. And Deng Xiaoping is going to be an influential face of what China became today. So Deng would take this mantle, and the great proletarian revolution under Mao left China poor left it weaker and economically isolated. And 
Deng Xiaoping really believed two things. One, that China had backed the wrong horse. And two, the People's Republic to rival the United States and to rival their economic and technological power, it would have to do so through scientific development and through technology development, both of which the United States had had. So Deng Xiaoping would replace the command economy of Mao Zedong with a socialist market economy. The United States of America and the People's Republic of China, January 1st, 1979. The United States of America and the People's Republic of China have agreed to recognize each other and to establish diplomatic relations as of January the 1st, 1979. The United States recognizes the government of the People's Republic of China as a sole legal government of China. Within this context, the people of the United States will maintain cultural, commercial, and other unofficial relations with the people of Taiwan. The United States of America and the People's Republic of China reaffirm the principles agreed on by the two sides in the Shanghai Communique of 1972 and emphasize once again that both sides wish to reduce the danger of international military conflict. Neither should seek hegemony, that is, the dominance of one nation over others, in the Asia-Pacific region or in any other region of the world. And each is opposed to efforts by any other country or group of countries to establish such hegemony. So we have to continue establish, establishing that framework and the foundation of both what is happening in the United States and also what is happening in China at the time. And we, we have to talk about the Reagan ascendancy and why it's so important. And so, not to backtrack too far, but in the 60s into the 70s, we had seen a surge and a rise in conservatism. And what really set Reagan apart from during his campaign was that Reagan was himself. And during this time, we have to understand that Americans were dealing with a lot of doom and gloom in the 1970s. And so what Reagan did was prevent or present this vision of America that appealed to a lot of people, and in particular, the emerging Sunbelt middle class, right? And Reagan, Ronald Reagan, if you didn't know, was actually an actor and a politician who had made a name for himself as governor of California. And in his Time for Choosing speech in 1964, this really helped launch him onto the national stage. And many people who met him liked him. He was a, a he had this humor and likability and was able to get laughs out of people uh, during presidential debates. And this is important because uh, th this was a new take in a, a, for a reformation of, you know, what a politician was like to the public, right? And so Reagan, 
in his vision, pro- his promise was, well, his promise was promise. <laughs> and um, we have to put it into perspective. Uh, the 60s really ended on a sour note. Uh, Vietnam had dragged on. Uh, the, the gas prices re- remained high. The The Nixon administration really came tumbling down. And there was high amounts of stagflation and the sphere of influence of uh, the USSR really saw no end in sight. So Reagan, in contrast to all the pessimism, uh, ran on this campaign that promised improvement to every aspect of American life. And these promises resonated with the middle class in particular, and he vowed to cut inflation, interest rates, taxes, reassert American strength on the global stage, and ending the hostage crisis that Carter was unable to end, and scale back the size of government. And what we should find the most ironic thing is that this is what politicians have been telling us the last 10 election cycles. Twelve years ago, former President Nixon arrived in Beijing, stepped down from Air Force One, and shook hands with former Premier Zhou Enlai. Premier Zhou would later tell him, your handshake came over the vastest ocean in the world, 25 years of no communication. With one handshake, America and China each turned a new page in their histories. I believe that history beckons again. We have begun to write a new chapter for peace and progress in our histories, with America and China going forward hand in hand. Xia Shou, Bing Jin. We must always be realistic about our relationship, frankly acknowledging the fundamental differences in ideology and institutions between our two societies. Yes, let us acknowledge those differences. Let us never minimize them, but let us not be dominated by them. I have not come to China to hold forth on what divides us, but to build on what binds us. I have not come to dwell on a closed-door past, but to urge that Americans and Chinese look to the future, because together we can and will make tomorrow a better day. So despite these promises that we just talked about, the Reagan presidency was plagued by a series of scandals. And honestly, the Iran-Contra affair would, requires a podcast uh, within its own because how convoluted and how crazy it is. Essentially, to, to summarize, uh, Ronald Reagan and his administration bypassed Congress, con- uh, Congress's authorization uh, to supply arms to the anti-communist rebels. And um, Congress had passed legislation um, in 1982 to 84, three amendments, which we call the Boland Amendments. And there, there was a series of large investigations by both Congress and the press. And, you know, Ronald Reagan would go on to provide military supplies to the anti Soviet Afghan rebels, the Khmer Rogue, the anti Cuban forces in Angola, 
And there's a book, uh, Charlie Wilson's War, which uh, tells a story, uh, among many others, of how America purchased $2 billion worth of weapons from China to support the Afghan rebels. So now, taking it even further would be the birth of probably the most controversial economic theory in human history. And it is the trickle-down economic theory where Reagan would cut the taxes of the wealthiest Americans and corporations. And, you know, while Americans were fighting a stagnating GDP and we're in this topsy-turvy economy, the, you you know, us Americans, we wanted someone to save us. Like I talked about, we, you know, we were dealing with a surge in gas prices. We were dealing with this topsy-turvy economy. And what Reaganomics did was it it threw, threw them an anchor disguised as a life vest. And his policies of, you know, rugged individualism would really translate well to the ideals about what it is to be an American and American exceptionalism. So this would represent this fundamental break with FDR's New Deal activism and what is responsible fiscal policy. And even though uh, stagflation from the 1970s had ended, the, what what is failed to what people fail to recognize is is the valley of wealth inequality that can be pinpointed to the Reagan tax cuts. So, a study from the Economic Policy Institute in 2019 found that CEO pay has risen by 940%. I'm going to say that again, 940%. While since the 1970s, worker pay has only increased 12%. So these the short-term results from the modern monetary theory and, and trickle-down economics, they were really unexceptional. And the economic policies would really lock American society into a inferior set of institutions, an inferior set of ideologies, income distribution, and an educational system that had this deleterious impact in the decades to come. And th- this would only calcify our fall. Fish? Mr. President, you have stated flatly and you stated flatly again tonight that you did not trade weapons for hostages. And yet the record shows that every time an American hostage was released last September, this July, and again just this very month, there had been a major shipment of arms just before that. Are we all to believe that was just a coincidence? Chris, the only thing I know about major shipments of arms, as I've said, everything that we sold them could be put in one cargo plane and there would be plenty of room left over. Now, if there were major shipments, and we know this has been going on, there have been other countries that have been dealing in arms with Iran. There have been also private merchants of of such things uh, that have been doing the same thing. Now, I've seen the stories about a Danish tramp steamer and uh, Danish sailors union officials are talking about uh, their ships taking uh, various supplies to Iran. I didn't know anything about that till I saw the press on it because we certainly never had any contact with anything of the kind. 
So China would agree to re reciprocate the purchase of arms, and they would be purchasing uh, weapon systems from the United States, totaling over well over a billion dollars, and further strengthening our secret adversary. They would be borrowing from one of their stratagems from the 36 stratagems that we talked about earlier in the episode, borrowed the road to conquer Guao while using our resources to turn them on the Soviets, we would be giving them assistance and genetic engineering, intelligent robotics, AI, physics, atomic energy, and astronautics and economics. So not to gloss or glaze over the 1989 incident of Tiananmen Square, on the next episode, uh, we will be talking in depth of what happened. So under Deng Xiaoping, you know, it completely shocked the world that the polity, that a state would sanction the mass murder of thousands of its own citizens. Yet the U.S. policy towards China would remain relatively unchanged despite this fact, right? So President George H.W. Bush, uh, Bush Sr., uh, he would battle uh, the 102nd Congress's calls to get tougher on China and instead would take advice from his old boss, uh, Richard Nixon. And, and Bush Sr. even noted in his, in his diary, said, don't disrupt the relationship. What's happened has been handled badly and is deplorable. But take a look at the long haul. So Bush didn't want to halt trade uh, or do anything rash to disturb the Sino-American relationship in the long run. And what was unknown to us Americans at the time and the government was that the trend of liberalizing inside the country and liberalizing the economy uh, would, would essentially at this moment would it would entirely halt. And so they looked at the protesters as this ideology need, needs to be squashed. And so cabinet members inside the Bush White House would spin that this massacre was only a temporary setback and that the trend for democratizing for China was still strong, yet in reality... This isn't true whatsoever. So China would would witness Xi shifting in their favor in November of 1989 with the USSR regime in East Germany completely collapsing and opening its borders. And of course, this, you know, paints the picture of, you know, citizens smashing the Berlin Wall with sledgehammers and the general secretary of the USSR, Mikhail Gorbachev, was tasked with reforming this cumbersome government and streamlining it. And he instituted the policies of glasnost and pedestroika, meaning openness for the former and restructuring for the latter. And these policies would shine this light on the worst of both the capitalists and the communist systems. And in some markets, you know, price controls were lifted, but existing bureaucratic structures were left in place. And what this did was allow communist officials to, to push back against policies that did not benefit them personally. 
And in combination with Gorbachev's reforms and his abandonment of the Brezhnev Doctrine, this would hasten the, the demise of the Soviet Empire. And the, the Iron Curtain completely fell. And now what China would do would they would they avoided what they call Soviet encirclement and they would take on the mantle of leader of the communist world. So the CCP would begin ramping up its propaganda propaganda efforts inside the country. And they chronicled again what they call the century of humiliation to its citizens so president bush senior would tout that he was convinced that the forces of democracy and uh, that they were bolstered by you, you know executives here in the us so his intelligence community was telling him one thing whereas business leaders here in the united states would essentially be telling him hey don't get tough on china we want to have access to the largest emerging market in the world. We want to sell them stuff. So Bush uh, would order the Pentagon to comp complete a delivery of millions of dollars of artillery and torpedoes to China. And Deng Xiaoping and his Politburo essentially at this moment confirmed that she had shifted in their favor, that the alignment of forces was pushing China to overtake the bot would overtake the United States of America. And essentially, they, they had killed two birds with one stone. So now China would no longer need America to protect them from the Soviet Union and that they could focus on the real threat, us, the United States. So I, I really hope that the... 40 minutes of content that we've been going over um, has given you an understanding of how we are in the situation we're in uh, currently with China and the United States essentially going head to head, you know, in, in the 21st century. And it, it's ironic because in the 19th century and 20th century, we essentially built up our own enemy. And in, if you could take any message away from this podcast is that the Cold War never ended. Uh, the Cold War never actually ended. It wasn't just the USSR. It was, uh, it was both the USSR and China. And essentially, we built our own enemy. And this seems to be a reoccurring theme. If, you know, us Americans and our leaders would look to history and would look to, you know, uh, Great Britain. And let's look at how the British Empire ended. They overspent themselves. They overextended themselves. And World War II ushered in the end of Pax Britannica and ushered in Pax Americana. And so... The framework of this episode is to establish that, you know, one, the history of us building them up, us, you know, being distracted by our neighbor and us being deceived by China and then borrowing from their their stratagems, borrowing, you know, killing with a borrowed sword and being patient for decades or longer to achieve victory and military might is not the critical factor for winning in the long term 
And so on the next episode, we'll jump into the 21st century and we'll talk about one Tiananmen Square and how Tiananmen Square and the Hong Kong protests are pivotal in the battle for democracy and and how you know what what has the united states been doing while china has been building themselves up in the background and um talking about xi jinping and his belt and road initiative so i hope you like this episode if you do please like i encourage you to subscribe i do these every week um and please give me a rating on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you're listening to this from but um y'all i hope you're safe and healthy out there and uh i'll be talking to you next week have a good one